0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through three episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of this issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the first in a series of three devoted to our September 2016 issue on the microbiome. I am your host, Helen Balenson, a third-year graduate student in the immunobiology program here at Yale.
1: And I'm your host, Allie Kuhlman, a third-year graduate student in the immunobiology program. As Helen mentioned, the September issue of YJBM is focused on the microbiome. In this episode, we will start by placing the current state of the field of microbiota research within a historical context— highlighting the conceptual and technological innovations pivotal to the field's emergence. We'll start by defining the microbiome and explore how its definition has shifted over the last three decades, particularly how the concept of the microbiome entered the biomedical field. We will then explore the novel methods developed in the last decade used to classify the particular microbial species within a microbiome and other technological advances critical in this field. We'll explain the integral role mouse models have had in advancing the field of research and how mice have led to many central discoveries about the influence of the microbiota on our health. We'll then delve into this topic further, discussing our
0: current understanding of how the microbiome affects the human body. We'll look at when we first acquire a microbiome and the role that these bugs have on the development of organ systems as diverse as the gut and the immune system. We'll highlight how our microbiome can change what affects it, and how those changes can influence our lives. We will then discuss the role of the microbiome in diseases, such as autoimmunity, allergies and asthma, and psychological disorders. Lastly, we'll address the clinical techniques used to modulate the microbiome to aid in those
1: diseases, including the much-talked-about fecal transplant. The microbiome is so critical in so many aspects of health that many scientists and physicians have referred to our microbiomes as our second genome. And we hope to convince you by the end of this hour that your microbiome is as much a part of you as your own DNA. But let's start simply. What is the microbiome?
0: So the term microbiome was first used by Whips, Lewis, and Cook in their 1988 paper on the relationships between plants and their resident microorganisms and how these connections aid in defending the plant from invading pathogens. There is a medley of microorganisms from bacteria to fungi that interact with plants to maintain their health. To characterize these interlaced and complex relationships further, Whips Lewis and Cook coined the term microbiome as a characteristic microbial community occupying a reasonably well-defined habitat which has distinct physico-chemical properties. They continued, stating that the term thus not only refers to the microorganisms involved, but also encompasses their theaters of activity, meaning that the microbiome of a given location encompasses the microorganisms living in that location as well as their relationships and interactions amongst each other and with that location.
1: For a decade and a half, microbiome was rarely used in medical biology, remaining predominantly in the botanical and environmental fields. In 2001, however, Joshua Lederberg, a molecular biologist at Rockefeller, wrote a piece in The Scientist, bringing the term to medical popularity. Interestingly, Lederberg did not set out with this as a goal. He mused on the increasing presence of the suffix "-om", in biological science. To Lederberg, Ulm in biology has the intellectual function of directing attention to a holistic abstraction, an eventual goal of which only a few parts might be initially at hand. For him, the perfect example was the microbiome. He accidentally redefined it from Whipps, Lewis, and Koch's original definition, describing it as an ecological community of commensal, symbiotic, and pathogenic microorganisms that literally share our body space, noting the potential significance of these bugs as determinants of health and disease. Microbiome technically still is defined as its original definition. However, Letterberg's accidentally narrowing of its definition has made microbiome particularly colloquially refer to the group of microorganisms that inhabit other larger organisms. That is to say, our bodies are like massive ecosystems, home to bacteria, viruses, and parasites. These microorganisms make up our microbiome. So let's summarize. So the microbiome is a collection of
0: microorganisms that live in and on us during both times of health and sickness. But let me just take a quick side note. In addition to the word microbiome, the word microbiota is also thrown around. Although microbiome and microbiota are often used interchangeably, it's worthwhile to emphasize an important yet subtle difference between the two, which refers back to when microbiome was officially originally coined nearly three decades ago. The microbiota refers to the microorganisms inhabiting a defined environment, answering the questions, what microorganisms live here? The microbiome, on the other hand, is the microorganisms, including their genes and genomes, as well as the biomolecular products they make, like proteins and lipids. On top of this, microbiome tends to additionally incorporate the environment of the host, or the environment of the location, such as important cells or biomolecules with which the microbiota directly interacts.
1: Helen brings up a very nuanced but significant distinction between these two words. This difference reflects a theme that we will be returning to throughout this series, namely that the microorganisms found in humans or other animals, i.e., the microbiota, do not exist on their own. The microorganisms comprising the microbiota are in constant contact with each other, competing amongst themselves for valuable resources, or in some instances, learning to depend on the other's presence for their own survival. Even beyond that, the microbiota is constantly interacting with its host's environment. The host influences the microbiota, and the microbiota influences the host. So despite microbiota not explicitly encompassing both, these relationships are so intricate and intertwined that when one thinks about the microbiota, they have to consider the environment in which the microbiota exists. Thus, frequently in scientific literature and media, the terms are used interchangeably.
0: So let's take a step back to when interactions between multicellular organisms and microorganisms were first being discussed in scientific literature. In his 1875 publication, Animal Parasites and Messmates, Pierre Joseph von Beneden presented over 250 examples of relationships between a microorganism and a larger multicellular organism, in which at least one player benefited and no one's health was risked. The messmate, as described by Van Beneden, does not live at the
1: expense of his host. All he desires is a home or his friends' superfluities. What Van Beneden was describing with his messmate was a commensal relationship. Ecologically, Commensal relationships between two organisms occur when one organism benefits without helping or harming the other. In comparison, a mutualistic relationship is one in which each organism benefits from the other. As defined by Lederberg, the microbiome is dynamic, consisting of the microorganisms that live within us consistently, that live within us acutely, those that make us sick, those that help us in various ways, and those that don't affect us much at all. Predominantly, however, the microbiome is made up of commensal or mutualistic microorganisms. Though the idea of commensalism has been around for a while, the
0: concept of human commensals has only been brought into popularity in the last few decades, bringing an explosion of microbiota research. Our appreciation of the microbiome's size and influence on the host's body has only just begun. This is especially true because while most research, including the work we will be referencing today, has been done on bacteria of the microbiome, the microbiome refers to all organisms in- inhabiting the body, however, from bacteria to viruses to parasites. This is, um, and this, the emphasis on bacteria is due to technological advances that have allowed scientists to explore the bacteria in various niches of the body. Well, the technology needed to fully define viral and parasitic diversity still doesn't exist. However, this is a quickly advancing field, and we will be discussing in the next episode and in the third episode
1: of the series some of the novel means being used to define such microorganisms. I would argue that two major points hindered earlier advancement of the microbiome field as a whole. The first was social. New major concepts in biological research take many years to be accepted as fact accumulation of ample evidence that has been checked and double-checked by multiple labs is necessary to sway scientists, and this tends to take a while. Nor is it a very novel concept. When Niklaus Copernicus's work stimulated the Copernican revolution, arguing for heliocentrism, in which the world revolves around the sun, many thought he was crazy. Now, it is the people who think the universe revolves around the earth that are the crazy ones. (laughs) Astrophysicists, is not the only field stricken with stubborn scientists. There have been many times in biological research history where knowledge we take for granted today was dismissed as untrue based on what was accepted at that point in time. For example, nowadays, scientific and non-scientific communities alike accept that infectious diseases, or diseases that are transmissible between individuals, are caused by infectious agents like viruses, bacteria, and parasites, what initially were referred to as germs. The 19th century brought the first internationally used vaccine for any disease, which was designed by Edward Jenner to combat smallpox, a disease officially declared eradicated by the World Health Organization in 2002. However, in the same time period, the one, I might add, where Van Benedien was describing his messmates, Ignaz Semmelweis, a Hungarian visit- physician was committed to an asylum due to his belief that newborns died from infections transmitted when obstetricians did not wash their hands between childbirths. Puerperal fever killed between 10 to 30% of newborns in this era. Semmelweis strove to have the obstetricians in his department wash their hands between deliveries, decreasing the mortality rate to near 1%. His work saved thousands of lives, but the scientific and non-scientific communities did not believe that the deaths were caused by the dirty hands of the doctors. Their disbelief forced Simmelweis into an asylum where he lived to the end of his days. Thankfully, nowadays, we don't ban scientists to asylums for novel ideas. But as with the understanding of infections, the scientific community's acceptance of the human microbiome and its importance in human health also took some convincing. So the second advancement that was required for the
0: field was technological. The last decade of microbiome research has predominantly been driven by new advances in sequencing technologies. To taxonomically define bacterial species in a population, a technique called 16S rRNA sequencing is now used. Before sequencing advances genetically differentiated species, organisms were classified based on appearances and physical and biochemical properties, and bacteria were no exception. Bacteria were distinguished by shape, from spherical cocci to rod shaped bacilli, to the environments they inhabited, to the details of their biochemistry. In order to bring more orderliness to the classification system, in 1962, Roger Steiner and Cornelius Van Niel defined the differences between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. They were defined by the presence or absence of a dense central cellular structure called a nucleus. Eukaryotes are classified as cells with nuclei containing their DNA, where prokaryotes lacked a defined organelle to carry their genomic information. Eukaryotes are all animal and plant cells, while prokaryotes are bacteria. This distinction was entirely based on the physical appearance of these
1: classes of cells. The idea that the world's organisms were divided into these two major domains was held until 1977 when Carl Woese, a microbiologist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, published two papers where he pioneered the use of sequencing to classify bacterial species. Working with George Fox, WoS sequenced the 16 rRNA RNA of multiple microbial species classified as prokaryotes. They found that there was a fair amount of prokaryote-like organisms that were genetically as distinct from other prokaryote-like organisms as from their eukaryotic brethren. In fact, these three subsets of cells, the two classes of prokaryotes and the eukaryotes, were all vastly genetically different. As such, based on genetic rather than phenotypic differences, Woese divided life into three domains that we have today: bacteria, archaea, and eukarya. Of course, he got some pushback initially, but within a decade, most of the scientific community accepted his three domains, and the techniques he used has once again redefined microbiology everywhere. So let's take a moment to delve into the
0: technical aspects of all this. What is 16S rRNA sequencing actually doing, and how does it work? So 16S rRNA is the nucleic acid component of the 30S, or small, subunit of prokaryotic and archaic ribosomes. Ribosomes are complex machines in every cell, responsible for translating messenger RNA into proteins. They're made up of two subunits, both made up of ribosomal RNA, or rRNA, and protein complexes the large subunit, which joins amino acids together into a polypeptide chains, and the small subunit, which reads the RNA to determine the order of amino acid assembly. As ribosomes are critical to the function of each cell, even in bacteria, they evolve and mutate fairly rapidly. So as ribosomes are critical to the function of each cell, even in bacteria, who evolve and mutate fairly rapidly, the genes encoding the ribosomal proteins in rRNA are highly conserved between different species of bacteria and archaea. As ribosomes are critical to the function of each cell, even in bacteria who evolve and mutate fairly rapidly, the genes encoding the ribosomal proteins and rRNA are highly conserved between different species of bacteria and archaea. 16s rRNAs have such highly conserved sequences, but also contain hypervariable regions that are kind of like fingerprints for bacterial species. Bacteria that are closely related have almost identical conserved regions with only slightly different hypervariable regions. As the compared bacteria species are more phylogenetically different, there are greater differences in their constant regions and many more differences in hypervariable regions. To get your target niche's bacterial genome, you can isolate the DNA from the bacteria, replicate the DNA, and sequence the 16S rRNA sequences. Researchers can use a variety of databases that store previous 16S rRNA results from thousands and thousands of species, allowing investigators to either identify their bacterial species or alert them to their discovery of a new bacterium. A major advancement to this technique that is worth pointing out is that, in order to obtain 16S sequencing reads, very little amounts of bacteria are needed. This becomes highly significant when dealing with microorganisms, like those of the microbiome, as we will discuss further on, that are uniquely adapted to a very specific niche. Since many bacteria are nitpicky about their environment, Growing up large batches of them at a time can be very difficult because you have to precisely mimic their preferred living conditions. Standard culturing conditions just might not cut it for a bacteria that's used to the low oxygen of the gut or the high acidity of the stomach. Unlike many of the descriptive techniques we just discussed, you don't need to grow up large batches of bacteria in in your lab to perform 16S on it. Eliminating the step allowed us to analyze the microbial composition all over the body without skewing results based off the finicky
1: requirements of different bacterial populations. Today, the microbiome is described predominantly by 16S rRNA sequencing. There have been hundreds of papers using 16S rRNA sequencing to specify the microbiota, human or animal, in various conditions that have been indescribably important to the field and have led to many discoveries. The human microbiome is made up of a variety of different classes, or phyla, of bacteria. The phyla that make up a particular niche's microbiota depends on that niche. The gut is dominated by Bacteroidetes, the firmicutes, the skin behind the ear is chock full of acnobacteria, and the mouth, while very diverse, has one of the highest frequencies of proteobacteria in the body. To more universally define what is contained in the human microbiome, the United States National Institute of Health launched an initiative in 2008 called the Human Microbiome Project. Over 5,000 samples were collected from 242 healthy volunteers from various sites, such as the lower intestine via stool, genitals, skin, and respiratory tract. The composition of the microbiota was identified by 16S rRNA sequencing, discerning over 12,000 species. This project is highly similar to the Human Genome Project, whose goal is to define human genome sequence, and as with genomes, the human microbiome varies greatly between individuals, such that sequencing only gives us a general sense of what each person's genome and microbiome contain. Currently, estimates that are that one-third of the microbiome is consistent among humans, with high variance in the other two-thirds.
0: Speaking of uniqueness of the microbiome, we should describe how variety is created in the microbiome. It has generally been accepted that a child obtains their initial microbiota from their mother during birth, predominantly from her skin and vagina. This initial group of bugs subsequently develops drastically in the first few years of life, settling within a year of life. Although it was frequently thought that fetuses are sterile, and that the first encounter with bugs a child has is after birth, a lot of evidence evidence has accumulated that this may not be the full story. The data from the Human Microbiome Project are available to scientists around the world, making them that much more powerful. By looking at these data, Kirsti Agard, an associate professor in the Department of Ob- Obstetrics and Gynecology at Baylor College of Medicine, observed that the the microbes in newborns' intestines, which should be one of the first areas of colonization, didn't match the microbes found on their mom's skin or vagina. Through elegant studies, Argard showed that, in fact, the first dose of microbes children receive is from their mother's placenta, which has been shown to contain microbes, and while they're still in the uterus. Additionally, delivery via vaginal birth or cesarean section drastically impacts a child's microbiome. With the microbiota con- composition of a child of children born by cesarean showing significantly less resemblance to their mothers compared to those delivered vaginally. Importantly, a newborn's food is also highly impactful on when their microbiome shifts into a more adult-like state. Specifically, The cessation of breastfeeding is required for this transition, implying the role of maternal breast milk on sustaining a developing or childlike microbiome. The role of mother's breast milk in sustaining the microbiome helped scientists solve an interesting riddle first identified during the production of baby formula. So the isolation of certain complex sugars from breast milk initially perplexed scientists because babies actually lack the enzyme necessary to digest these sugars. And so because of this, the unnecessary sugars were left out of early formulas recipes. The identification of a species of bacteria called B. infantis in the microbiota of breastfed but not formula-fed infants, and subsequent biochemical characterization of these species showed that these bacteria were able to break down the complex sugar, an important aspect of digestion that we'll get into in a bit. These complex sugars are also really important in the health of a child. So in addition to feeding her baby, a mom is also feeding her baby microbiota.
1: After the initial colonization of microbes, An individual's microbiome stabilizes to having proportions between bacterial families that is fairly consistent among adults of similar lifestyles. But the microbiome is a dynamic system, and anything you could think of affects its precise composition. Lotions, bug sprays, and types of soaps and shampoos can affect the composition of the microbes living on your skin. Even the season can change those bugs. The temperature, sweating a lot, going in and out of the ocean, wearing long sleeves, and scratching can all affect the microbiota. Gut microbiomes are perhaps even more temperamental. So, Allie, I just want to point out that the gut, or the
0: gastrointestinal tract, is very long and has many different parts specializing in different functions. The upper intestinal tract is made up of the esophagus and stomach, which are involved in food transportation and of food digestion, respectively. These sections of the digestive tract are very different microenvironments compared to the lower intestinal tract. The lower intestinal tract is made up of the small and large intestines, both of which are subsequently subdivided into multiple sections. And each of these locations, even each subsection of each location, has its own unique microenvironment, meaning each location has its own unique microbiome.
1: That's right, Helen. Each of those locations has differences in acidity, nutrients, oxygen levels, and even slight differences in temperature. Some bugs are so finicky about their microenvironments that even those subtle differences affect the microbiota composition. Extensive studies have been done and are still being conducted into what influences microbiota composition. And to quickly summarize the findings, almost everything can act on the bugs, even in our guts, and everything is interconnected. The microbiota of living in areas with extreme exposure such as our noses, our skin, our ears, are strongly influenced by that external exposure. Humidity, sweat, lotions, perfumes can all influence the composition of bugs on these surfaces. The frequency of hand-washing, showering, hair-washing, and other activities that are meant to eliminate bad bugs also get rid of good bugs and strongly affects the composition of our quote-unquote natural microbiome. However, as you can probably tell, the microbiomes exposed to the world go through many fluctuations throughout the day, depending on the last time you washed your hands and how much you're sweating at a given moment. Along with these external microbiome fluctuations, our inner microbiomes also go through circadian and other changes. Our bodies are not the same when we wake up and when we go to bed. By being active, eating, and going outside, our bodies act without our knowledge to modulate the microenvironments of the various niches that are inhabited by the microbiota. Because of this, there are natural circadian changes in the microbiota. It's not that one class of bacteria disappears while another reappears, but the proportions of one species to another varies. These changes mostly occur due to food being consumed, as the gut microbiome aids greatly in digestion, as we'll be discussing in a bit. In a study that came from Peter Turnbaugh's lab at Harvard, they showed that a change in diet can drastically change the contents of one's microbiome in as little as a day. Additionally, when we eat, the production of various hormones and
0: proteins changes. For example, when we eat anything with sugar, our blood sugar levels rise, leading to the production of insulin. Insulin signals to muscle and fat cells to uptake the sugar to maintain the blood sugar level at a constant level. Insulin and other hormones can directly or indirectly change the microbiota. Sex hormones, such as testosterone, androgen, and estrogen, heavily influence the microbiota. For example, the signature of castrated male's microbiomes much more closely resembles that of women than that of a non-castrated male, while supplementing females with
1: testosterone changes their microbiota to look more like a male's. As the microbiome is made of microorganisms to which our bodies naturally react during an infection, any levels of inflammation can impact the microbiome and its composition. Patients affected with a variety of autoimmune disorders such as multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, have elevated baseline levels of inflammatory cytokines, and their microbiome composition is different from those unaffected by these syndromes. In studies of twins with autism, it was found that the twin affected by autism tends to have elevated levels of other particular inflammatory cytokines, like IL-6 and TNF-alpha. Unsurprisingly, the microbiomes of such twins also differs. If you look at the microbiome composition of an individual before, during, and after any infection, be they viral or bacterial, the microbiome composition varies between the three stages. The infecting agent itself can directly modify the microbiota by colonizing a particular niche, but also indirectly by elevating inflammatory molecules in the organism. Sickness affects the eating and sleeping habits of the host, which can also influence their microbiome. After infection, depending on how severe it was, the microbiome can either go back to the state it was in before the infection, or remain slightly altered. Antibiotics can also have a huge effect on the microbiome composition, as they directly kill the good bugs along with the bad ones. Not all of the microbiota is eliminated by antibiotic treatment, but a majority is, which can drastically alter the microbiome state in a way that can persist after use. However, if one goes home after antibiotic treatment, their microbiome tends to return to its pre-infection state, as we get most of our microbiome from the things that are around us daily. In fact, people who live together have very similar microbiomes. The more one person's lifestyle matches another, the closer their microbiomes are.
0: So now that we have an understanding of what the microbiome is, how we figure out the bugs that are part of a microbiota and how they can be modulated, let's dive into why so many scientists and physicians are beginning to conceive of the microbiome as an organ system of the body. How does the microbiome affect our health? But first, let's go through a few techniques that are used to complete these sorts of studies. So human studies are primarily correlative, done by sequencing of 16S rRNA to identify bacterial species associated with various conditions. Although powerful these correlative studies are not definitive to test hypotheses driven from derived from correlative studies many researchers turn to animal models such as germ-free animals germ-free animals are very important tools in microbiota and in microbiota research and lack any and all microorganisms that would typically live in or on them this goes beyond animals that have been on antibiotics these animals are most frequently mice that were born in bubbles and have never been exposed to any microbes. The use of germ-free animals allows researchers to understand the complex crosstalk between microorganisms and their hosts. Not only can we study what happens when various organ systems develop without a microbiota to understand the influence of the microbiota on the development, but we can also observe what happens when only particular microorganisms are reintroduced into the germ-free organisms. Although the microbiota is a blend of thousands of species of microbes, um, many studies have been aimed at deciphering whether one species can specifically be responsible for certain aspects of an organism's biology. Monocolonization studies, or studies done in which one bacterial species is introduced into germ-free mice, aim to demonstrate that the bacterial species is responsible for an observed phenomenon. It is important to keep in mind that the bacteria of the microbiome evolved to live in a particular niche of the body, the conditions of which are extremely difficult to recapitulate in a lab. For example, microbiota of the human gut live in conditions of varying acidity and oxygen levels surrounded by many human cells and human-generated molecules. Not only do we not know the exact composition of these molecules, but it's almost impossible to grow high acidity and low oxygen-loving bugs anaerobic chambers in which there's minimal oxygen have been important in growing particular species of the microbiota. However, to this day, growing most bacterial species of the microbiota is incredibly difficult or currently impossible. So any information that we have on their presence or their influence on their host organism is based on sequencing and correlation.
1: So let's get back to the question that has been driving lots of research. How does the microbiome affect human health? Fascinatingly, It has been known for a while in the veterinary field that an animal's microbiome has a huge influence over the animal's metabolic function. Antibiotics have been used fairly extensively in veterinary medicine, particularly in livestock, to stop the spread of infections. Although antibiotics kill the bad bugs, they also strongly affect the good bugs, as we have discussed before. Changing the microbiota landscape of the host... Many farmers have noticed, and subsequently researchers noticed, that antibiotic use can drastically alter the weight of the livestock. This observation, which was made long before the rise in human microbiome research, has many implications, one of which, obviously, is that the microbiome affects metabolism. When we look at the basic readout of metabolism, weight, one study showed that the microbiome affects metabolism in humans. In primary experiments done on the microbiome and weight, germ-free mice were given the microbes of the gut microbiomes of human twins, in which one twin was obese and the other was lean. Mice given the obese microbiomes gained weight drastically and were overweight, while the mice given lean microbiomes did not show a change of weight. Research since this time has sought to understand why this occurs. A seminal paper studied published in the early 2000s showed that there is a major difference in the percentage of firmicutes and bacteroides, two dominant groups of bacteria in human microbiomes, in lean and obese humans. Obese humans have a flowering of firmicutes, and lean humans have more bacteroides species. In fact, when obese individuals lost weight, the proportion of bacteroides to firmicutes inverted, such that their microbiota profile matched those of lean individuals towards the end of their weight loss journey. Half a decade later, researchers compared fat and skinny mice and saw a similar pattern with fat mice having more firmicutes and skinny mice having more bacteroides. They found that the obese mice also had much fewer calories in their feces than their lean counterparts. Turns out, firmicutes are much better than bacteroides at getting calories out of their host's food, such that they give the host more calories for the same amount of food consumed as bacteroides would. So individuals with more firmicutes get more calories from the food than they would if they had more bacteroides. So they consequently gain more weight. Of course, this is kind of a chicken-and-the-egg scenario. Do you get more bacteroides first, or do you gain weight first? Although this hasn't yet been answered, the most probable answer is that it's a combination of these scenarios.
0: So Frederick Backhead and Jeffrey Gordon's lab at Washington University in St. Louis Observe that germ-free mice have lower total body fat compared to their bug-containing counterparts, and they gain the body fat back once they are colonized with microbes. There are many reasons for this, the strongest one of which is that the gut microbiome is heavily involved in its host's food digestion. The human body has many means by which food is digested, from physically breaking it down with our teeth to chemically digesting it with various proteins that further break it down to molecular sizes and to the many organs that absorb the nutrients from the broken down food. But we do not have the ability to fully digest our food without the help of our resident commensal organisms. We depend on our gut and other organ microbiomes to maximize the amount of nutrition we can gain from our food. There are also studies showing that we have lost many proteins involved in digestions because one of our commensals or a group of our commensals are just better at it than we could have ever have been. But what exactly is the microbiota doing to affect the way we consume the nutrients we eat? We don't have time to go into everything that is, certain, that is currently known, but let's delve into some examples.
1: In very abbreviated terms, the microbiome aids our digestion and nutritional health in two major ways. First, it aids in breaking down food molecules we are unequipped to handle, and they make building blocks of larger biomolecules that we are unable to synthesize. The microbiota is important in the metabolism of carbohydrates, or sugars. Mammals absorb simple sugars from their food. These sugars are made when complex sugars found in food are broken down. We have enzymes that can break down fairly simple larger sugars, like sucrose and lactose, and to break down most starches but we do not have the necessary proteins to, co- to break down very complex sugars, like the ones found in plants such as cellulose and pectin. These undigested or partially digested sugars are like candy to the microbial communities of our guts. These bacteria have their proteins necessary to take these complex sugars and to break them down, which they do for us. And we take in the simple sugars that made up the bigger sugars. Don't worry, they keep some for themselves to use as food free food for a little labor. That's the microbiota (laughs) life. Also, the microbiota produce many fatty acids, a major source of fuel for organisms big and microscopically small. Intestinal bugs produce fatty acids we are incapable of making, and just like with sugars, break down fatty acids that we cannot. Importantly, they generate simple short chain fatty acids by breaking down dietary fiber from plant matter. Basically, our microbiota breaks down foods We cannot so that we get as much energy and nutrition from our food as possible. To go through all of the known examples of this is a daunting task, but you get the idea. In addition to actually breaking down the food molecules, the microbiota is important in maintaining homeostasis, or stability, of the physiology of the host in their niche. They ensure the proper level of mucus production and of host byproducts. Unfortunately, we do not have time to go into this, but needless to say, the microbiome is critical to the proper functioning of the human digestive tract.
0: In addition to the proper functioning of the digestive tract, the microbiota plays an essential role in the development of the immune system. Just as metabolites produced by bacteria in the gut can be found in circulation, so can bacterial components that make up their cellular structure. When bacteria die, their cellular structures break down, and their components, such as peptidoglycan, a component of bacterial cell walls, can also be found in the blood. The released components contribute to the education of what is called the peripheral immune system. Studies by Heinz Bauer and his colleagues in the early 60s identified that the spleens of germ-free mice have considerably smaller germinal centers. And so germinal centers are sites in which B cells, the cells of the immune system responsible for producing antibodies, are activated and mature. These are found in secondary lymphoid tissues, such as tonsils, Peyer's patches in the gut, and the spleen, which are important sites for the activation of the adaptive immune system. Not only are germinal centers essential for the maturation of B-cells and their adaptive immune counterparts, T-cells, but they also play a critical role in dictating the functional quality of the immune response. As such, the smaller sizes of germinal centers in germ-free mice make them numerically impaired in their production of adaptive immune cells. Not only is the cellular production decreased in these mice, the kind of immune response launched is different in germ-free mice compared to those that have a full microbiota. Depending on the kind of infection, different immune responses are launched in any mammal. When battling a virus which replicates inside a cell, you would use very different strategies than when you're attempting to eliminate a bacteria that just floats around in the blood outside of cells. The different responses are controlled by molecules produced by various immune cells, including adaptive immune cells. In germ-free mice, the inflammatory milieu produced by the immune system tends to be skewed towards a type 2 response. This response is associated with resistance to parasites, a point which we'll delve into in a bit. The absence of the microbiota prevents not only the development of a proper immune system, but also changes the way in which a host responds to infections. Interestingly, in some contexts, a microbiome-independent antibody response can be driven. This has been shown in mice that are resistant to retroviruses, a family of viruses that includes the infamous HIV. In mice that are resistant to infection with their microbiota, they remain resistant to infection when they are germ-free, as they are still able to launch a strong antibody response. Although we see a strong connection between the immune system and the microbiome, there are particular responses that can be launched just as strongly with and without the microbiome. The details of these particularities are still being explored.
1: In addition to these early studies on the impact of germ-free mice on systemic immunity, recent advances have focused on the role of the microbiome in shaping the immune responses, specifically in the gut. The main challenge for the immune system of the gut is to contain the beneficial bacterial microbiota within locations that limit their potential to cause harm. Pathogenicity, or the ability of an organism to cause disease, is often a location-dependent concept. Bugs that are safe to have on our skin aren't safe to have in our gut, and bugs that cause no harm in our lower gastrointestinal tract might lead to sepsis in an upper gastrointestinal location. As such, the immune systems constantly assess, interpret, and regulate the microbiota, allowing the growth and support of beneficial bacteria while preventing their invasion into off-limits locations in order to maintain the homeostatic balance necessary for life. This recharacterization of the immune system as park ranger of the ecological community of the body was a revolutionary way of thinking in stark contrast to the traditionally militaristic view of immune system as a weapon to seek out and destroy invaders.
0: Bacteria directly interact with skin or immune cells in the gut. An example of this comes from polysaccharide A, or PSA, a sugar found in the cell wall of many bacteria, including bacteroid- Bacteriorides fragilis, a family member of the bacterial family we mentioned earlier that's found in large quantities in lean people. PSA has been shown to drive the differentiation of a subset of T-cells called regulatory T-cells. In addition to limiting antigen-specific T-cell responses, these regulatory cells create an overall suppressive environment by their secretion of the suppressive cytokine IL-10. This interaction is necessary in preventing excessive inflammation that is pathogenic in its own light. Interestingly, mice deficient in the immunosuppressive cytokine IL-10 that are colonized with B. fragilis succumb to deadly sepsis, emphasizing the role of the immune system in containing the microbiome. While B. fragilis is only lethal in the context of a dysfunctional immune system, there are various pathobionts, such as Helicobacter pylori, that employ similar mechanisms to dampen the immune response, which can be pathogenic in certain populations
1: perhaps the most famous case of microbial education of the immune system, comes from studies with segmented filamentous bacteria, or SFB. In 2009, Ivyalo Ivanov and Dan Lipman's lab published the first paper showing the influence of this particular bacteria on the development of mouse immune systems. SFB are bacteria that are classical members of the microbiotas of various organisms, from rodents to chickens. However, not all laboratory mice have SFB in their guts. By studying mice with and without SFB as part of their microbiota, Ivanov showed that the presence of SFB induced a particular kind of immune cell in the guts of mice, particularly in the lamina propria. The TH17 cells that are produced are inflammatory cells and produce high levels of the cytokine IL-17 that are important in fighting extracellular pathogens. The lamina propria is a thin layer of connective tissue that is one of the components of our intestinal mucosal layer. In contrast to most commensal bacteria who live within the mucus, SFB bacteria are found closely associated with the epithelia. Through this closer link, mice who have SFB as part of their microbiota are able to induce a variety of antimicrobial and inflammatory genes that protect the host from colonization from the intestinal pathogen, Citrobacter rhodentium. Though both of these studies mentioned above are instances of a single bacterial species having a profound impact on the immune system, it is important to emphasize the fact that generally, it is population shifts as a whole that have the most profound phenotype on immune development.
0: Although our gut bugs and gastrointestinal tracts go hand-in-hand in in good times, they also go hand-in-hand in the bad times. The last decade has brought a great amount of research into the relationship between the microbiome and inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. IBD is comprised of two distinct conditions, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, both of which are characterized by chronic relapsing inflammation of the gut. While in Crohn's disease, there are healthy portions of the gut that are mixed in along with inflamed portions affecting every layer of the bowel wall, In ulcerative colitis, there is continuous inflammation of the colon, but it only affects the innermost lining of the colon. In both IBD conditions, there are genetic and environmental risk factors of disease, and now there is a connection between disease and the microbiome. Germ-free models of colitis do not get disease. Antibiotics often help dampen the symptoms of IBD. Mutations correlated with disease are predominantly in genes involved with controlling microbial spread. These, among other observations, have led to the hypothesis of the strong relationship between IBD and the microbiome.
1: From in-depth analyses of the microbiota composition of patients with IBD, it is now clear that there is dysbiosis of the microbiome. As we talked about before, there are normal fluctuations in microbiome composition, but IBD patients have much more drastic changes throughout their days and lives. The best characterized change in IBD patients revolves around a phyla of bacteria called firmicutes. First, there is a reduced abundance of these bacteria overall, and second, there is a clear decrease in the diversity of the species in the phyla. There have also been studies that have attempted to find an individual bacterial driver of disease. These studies, however, have been unsuccessful in that a single culprit has not been identified but they have been able to identify various pathogenic species that have been correlated with disease. These include mycobacteria Helobacter and Campylobacter. The observation that different pathogenic bacteria can be responsible for the symptoms of IBD indicates that the specific bad bug isn't important, but rather that disease results from compromised physiological integrity of the gut. The normal safeguards in place to prevent inflammation and infection of gut no longer function to their full capacity, allowing pathogens to cause infection instead of them being eliminated. Because of this, the changes in the microbiome seen in IBD patients lead to hyperactivation of the immune system and increased production of inflammatory signals, as the host's immune system detects the lack of balance of the microbiota usually experienced by the host. The increased inflammation then directly influences the composition of the microbiota, often making it more pathogenic, stimulating a chronic inflammatory loop.
0: In contrast to the chronic inflammatory state that leads to IBD, allergy is an instance in which there is a rapid, acute response to an environmental stimulus. Allergic reactions involve a type of immune response, the type 2 immune response, the inflammatory mediators of which can tend to be slightly higher in germ-free mice than in their non-germ-free counterparts. Allergy has been traditionally defined as a misdirected response towards innocuous environmental antigens and involves both the innate and adaptive immune systems. The potential impact that an altered microbiome might have on an allergic response was first raised by David Strachan. Strachan published an epidemiological study in 1989 that followed more than 17,000 British children and assessed their rates of rhinus or hay fever. The authors found a direct correlation between the number of siblings one had and the reduced likelihood of childhood allergies. The authors theorized that this reduced risk was due to an increased likelihood of being exposed to bugs by interactions with siblings. This is further validated by looking at decreased rates of allergies in children who attend daycare. The hygiene hypothesis hinges off the idea that our immune systems evolved under the pressure of constant parasitic infections. While reducing the, the instance of several childhood diseases as well as enteric infections, cleaner drinking water and a Western society's obsession with hand washing similarly decreases this parasitic burden. As such, when these immune systems come in contact with allergens, they respond inappropriately with an allergic response. Interestingly, Erika von Mutis, an allergist in Germany, confirmed this dichotomy between Eastern and Western cultures in a series of papers in the 1990s and her patients from East versus West Berlin following the fall of the Berlin Wall.
1: In the past decade, the role of the immune system in health and disease has extended past allergy and autoimmunity to encompass changes in the microbiome during disease progression. For instance, preliminary work on patients with cystic fibrosis has identified alterations in the lung-gut microbiome of patients with an overall decrease in diversity. If these changes can be correlated with disease severity and progression, this would open up a novel avenue for treatments. In addition, the realization that the microbiome might play a role in tumorigenesis is something that I, as a cancer researcher, find particularly exciting. The oncobiome refers to the specific microbial communities associated with tumors. Recent work has now begun the characterization of the changing microbial species present in premalignant, malignant, and metastatic disease. This field is still very, very new, but has found promising links between the homeostatic, inflammatory, and metabolic role of the microbiome discussed above and the process of tumorigenesis, particularly in the development of colorectal cancer.
0: So two years ago, I had pyelonephritis, which is an infection of the kidney, and was put on heavy antibiotics. I would talk to a nurse about patients treated with antibiotics and the effects she saw on them outside of just the antibiotics clearing out the infection. She told me that, anecdotally, antibiotics often affect a patient's mood, usually making them gloomier than usual. After I read this, I immediately started nerding out and reading about the connection between the microbiome and mood and came across a fascinating study published in 2011 when Premsil Bursic of the Farncombe Family Digestive Health Institute in Ontario showed the drastic effect the microbiome can have on the personalities of mice. He gave a mouse strain called Balb-C antibiotics to see if their personalities would change. These mice are white-furred, red-eyed, timid creatures, one of the least bold of the laboratory mouse lines. After antibiotic treatment, they became more exploratory and more adventurous. The treatment also increased the expression of brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF. BDNF is in the neurotrophin family of growth factors and is important in memory formation and mood. When these mice were taken off antibiotics, they lost their sense of adventure and became timid once again. In his second experiment, Bursig wanted to see whether the microbiome of the BALB-C mice was important in their shyness. To test this, he took a second line of mice, NIH Swiss mice, which are known for being very energetic and bold. He took germ-free BALB-C mice and germ-free NIH Swiss mice and gave them either BALB-C or NIH Swiss mouse microbiotas. BALB-C mice with BALB-C microbiotas acted shy and NIH Swiss mice with NIH Swiss microbiotas were as energetic as ever. However, the interesting observation came from the microbially swapped mice. The NIH Swiss mice, who are usually pretty adventurous, became anxious and shy with the BALB-C microbiotas while the Balb-C mice lost their fears and worries when they got the NIH Swiss mouse microbiotas and became little rodent adventurers.
1: The same year, a study was published by Javier Bravo of North Carolina State University in which they fed Balb-C mice, food that either contained or did not contain, a bacterium called lactobili- Lactobacillus rhamnosus, a popular probiotic bug marked as one of those cure-all treatments. Mice that ate food containing lactobacillus rhamnosus became hyper-excited and much more eager to do activities, such as swimming. During lab tests, they were much less anxious or depressed compared to mice that ate food lacking the bug. So, gut bugs affect mice. What about humans?
0: To answer that, I want to tell you about two observations. First, as we discussed earlier, IBD diseases, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease specifically, are largely invo- influenced by their microbiota. The inflammation that is derived from the disease-associated microbiota is characterized by a stark elevation of many different inflammatory signaling molecules. But in particular, one famous molecule is called tumor necrosis factor, TNF. In multiple studies, TNF has been shown to be responsible for the altering of the microbiome to one that propagates the inflammatory bowel disease phenotype. So that's one observation. The second one comes from patients with various autoimmune disorders that are treated with TNF inhibitors. So TNF elevation is a trademark and driver of many autoimmune disorders, including IBD, but also rheumatoid arthritis. TNF inhibitors are frequently used to treat patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and it was observed that patients given TNF inhibitors would often come back to their physician's office quite quickly after treatment, saying they felt better, much faster than would be expected by just eliminating inflammation. It has since been found that TNF strongly affects mood and that patients weren't actually feeling less pain, they were simply feeling happier and less depressed, so their symptoms felt alleviated. Bipolar disorder, which is a disorder characterized by patients having alternating periods of emotional elation and depression, have also been marked by elated inflammatory cytokines like TNF. In clinical trials of TNF inhibitors, the same ones used to treat rheumatoid patients most see beneficial changes to patients' mood in bipolar disorder. Of course, this is nowhere near definitive, and the effects are subtle. But there is this link between the microbiome and mood, mostly through these kind of elevated inflammatory cytokines. Patients suffering depression have different microbiome signatures compared compared to their partners with whom they live, people that would be predicted to have close microbiota signatures. After treatment with antidepressants, microbiome signatures also return back to a more normal state. Again, studies done in humans are correlative, so it's difficult to say what comes first, the change in the microbiome, change in inflammation, or disease, but they seem to be interconnected. The microbiome modulates the inflammatory milieu of the host, which can directly change the behavior and mood of that host. The signaling between the microbiome and nervous system has been termed the gut-brain axis, or the microbiome-gut-brain axis, We have barely scratched the surface of this fascinating phenomenon here, but it is important to note that the constant biochemical communication between the gastrointestinal tract and the central nervous system is a very hot research topic.
1: This is solely a minimal list of what is currently known to be influenced by the microbiome. There are hundreds of examples that we have not covered, as well as countless ones that are yet to be discovered. Knowing the influence of the microbiome on development and disease leads us to wonder whether it would be possible to treat diseases that have strong microbial influence by changing the microbiome. This question was inadvertently first addressed by Yi Hong, a traditional Chinese doctor in the 4th century in China during the Dongjin Dynasty, as described in the book, Handy Therapy for Emergencies he prescribed patients with food poisoning or severe diarrhea a suspension of a healthy human fecal sample, which, according to his results, ended symptoms and saved many patient lives. This is the first known instance of a fecal transplant. The idea behind fecal transplants, specifically fecal microbiota transplants, is that you can replace the Bad microbiota that causes sickness with the good microbiota that will outcompete the bad, kicking them out and taking their place. Twelve centuries later, in the Ming Dynasty of the 16th century, Li Shizhen, a Han Chinese doctor and pharmacologist, wrote of using fecal transplants as therapy in his famous book, Compendium of Materia Medica. He used fermented fecal solutions, fresh fecal suspensions, dry feces, or infant feces, as treatments for severe diarrhea, fever, pain, vomiting, and constipation. Apparently, patients were so abhorred by the fact that he was giving them fecal matter that he and other doctors called the preparations of fecal suspensions by other names, such as yellow soup. Until recently, the use of fecal microbiota transplants has been minimal in human medicine. Until very recently, that is. So in
0: veterinary medicine, it was first described to be used in the 17th century by the Italian anatomist Fabricus Aquapendente, and in the past few decades has been used particularly after antibiotic treatment. Animals, of course, also have a natural way of getting fecal transplants by eating their own or other animals' feces, as I'm sure all pet owners out there have experienced. Nowadays, fecal transplants in human medicine are making a strong comeback, making many people question why we stopped the practice in the first place. There have been many successful trials in various diseases. The most influential and talked about studies have been those in which fecal microbiota transplants are used to treat recurrent Clostridium difficile infections. Clostridium difficile, colloquially known as C. diff, is a bacteria that is infamous for causing clostridium difficile colitis, which is the inflammation of the large intestine due to infection by this bacteria, causing bloating, diarrhea, and severe pain. This bug can be transferred from person to person via the fecal-oral route, but can also infect individuals via its alternate spore form. Spores are heat-resistant, basically dried-out forms of bacteria that cannot be killed by alcohol-based cleansers, which is predominantly what hospitals use to clean. So these spores stick around clinical settings for long periods, infecting unsuspecting patients who are often immunosuppressed. As soon as the spores get ingested, they germinate and multiply once they get to the bile acids of the stomach, causing infection. Although mild cases of C. diff infection can be treated with antibiotics, C. diff has begun to acquire resistance to many antibiotics, and C. diff infections have a lot of potential to relapse in a reported fifth of all cases. In 2011, C. diff caused 29,000 deaths in the United States alone. In a study conducted in 2012 by Lawrence Brandt of Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, and Christina Surowitz of the University of Washington in Seattle, they used fecal microbiota transplantation to treat patients with recurrent C. diff infections. They found that there was a 91% primary cure rate and a 98% secondary cure rate. This is an incredible percentage. Combining the current data from published studies shows that, on average, 90% of patients recover from C. diff infections with fecal microbiota transplantation. This is fascinating because the patients who are put into these studies have already undergone antibiotic and other treatments. The discrepancy between the average of 90% and the aforementioned study with the 98% most likely comes from the differences in delivery method. Nearly all of their patients were cured of their infections after fecal microbiota transplantation. Not only that, 97% of patients say that they would happily undergo another fecal microbiota transplantation if needed, emphasizing how simple, easy, and effective this treatment is.
1: Fecal microbiota transplantation is currently also being used to treat ulcerative colitis and other gastrointestinal conditions, as well as autoimmune disorders, obesity, metabolic syndromes, and mental disorders. In fact, Thomas Borody, a gastroenterologist at the Center for Digestive Diseases in New South Wales, Australia, has noted that in patients he cured from C. diff infections who had other diseases, such as Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and rheumatoid arthritis, also experience decreased severity in these symptoms of their diseases outside of the C. diff infection after transplant. Currently, there are many clinical trials being done to test these correlative observations. The future of fecal microbiota transplantation is bright, and I, for one, am very excited to see where this treatment can help in
0: the medical field. I completely understand how yellow soup is a more appealing name than fecal transplant, But I agree, the current data is very exciting and provides an insight to how powerful this technique can be. So now that we've gone through the basic ins and outs of the microbiome, that's the end of our episode.
1: Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us soon in our second podcast of the series on the microbiota, where we will discuss our issue in the current state of the microbiome research at the laboratory bench and in the clinic with Dr. Martin Kriegel a rheumatologist and assistant professor of immunobiology here at Yale.
0: Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to Philip Kearney and the rest of the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast.
1: Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Tomoaki Sasaki and Yasmin. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Thank you to our editors-in-chief. Tomoaki Sasaki, and Yasmin Zakinyaz, and the rest of the YJBM staff. We are produced and written by Helen Balenson, Erica Gorenberg, and Allie Kuhlman. Thanks to Valia Kusjak, who helped us with edits. For more information on
0: YJBM and our podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. If you'd like to contact us, email us at yjbm at yale.edu.
1: If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by leaving comments. You can also listen to us and share our podcast at soundcloud.com.